All right. This morning, we, we did, technically it was part two. It felt like part one. But we started discussing uh, baptism in the early church. I'd kind of already done an introduction for it. So tonight we're going to do a lot of church history. But before, and just remember, for the series, we're looking at three historical sources. The Didache, or the Didache, again, depending on which book you read. Uh, Tertullian uh, on baptism and Hippolytus on the apostolic tradition. Those are the three sources that we're looking at. Um, when we get to each one, I'll spell everything, make sure everybody has all of it. But before we get started, I want to do this, all right? So this morning we talked a lot about the issue of authority, uh, all the problems that arise from that, um, that it's frustrating that if we look at all the different aspects of baptism and how much disagreement there is on baptism, it's absolutely insane. Yet all those people would claim that the Bible's the final authority. And so I tried to make the argument that if we are all honest, that we've replaced the Bible with ourselves, and nobody wants to admit that, but it's just a fact because you couldn't have one source of authority and have that much disagreement for 2,000 years. It's just, there's no way. So we talked a lot about those issues and those problems. Uh, but here's what I want to do. If we uh, just, and, and because sometimes for some of these uh, debates and issues, we know one thing. We know just quoting scripture doesn't fix the problem, right? Because whatever scripture we quote, we'll quote another scripture. That doesn't fix anything. Uh, the typical argument is, well, if you go back in church history, that'll fix the problem because church history is unanimously infant baptism. Well, we've already seen that the Didache, the earliest source, right? Even before most of the New Testament was written. The, yeah, the Didache, clearly, if, you remember, if everybody remembers from this morning, what are the things that require before baptism can occur in the Didache or the Didache? First, they have to be instructed. They have to be baptized into water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they have to what? Fast. So that clearly seems to eliminate infant baptism. What else was missing in the Didache? Any language that would seem to, to connect it to being, to being salvific or regenerative. That, that language is just not present in any way, shape, or form. But, but even if we quoted that, there would still be arguments, right? Because we would quote the Didache and they'd be like, well, it doesn't say infant baptism is wrong. So therefore, so, the, so no matter what we, and then they would quote Tertullian or they would quote Augustine or they'd on and on and on and on and on and on. And it's just, at some point, you just throw your hands up. But I want to approach it from this perspective, and I want us to think about this, all right? Because you know what I love to do? I like to agree with a point of view, and then take it to its logical conclusion. So let's agree that the Bible, let's just say that the Bible, Christianity, teaches infant baptism, all right? Eight days old. It washes away sin, it regenerates the baby, and the baby becomes saved, right? Which is a, a major teaching throughout church history, right? The majority of church history believe that, right? Do what? Yeah, wash away original sin, wash away original sin, all right? So let's say that this is true, all right? Now, if that is true, and at the same time, we believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, Right? Let's say that we still believe that, that uh, salvation is not apart from works. Now, on one hand, that can work, right? Because there's nothing more l- salvation apart from works than a baby being saved through baptism, right? Because the baby's doing nothing, okay? So, but if this is true, 
If we take it to its logical conclusion, what else would have to be true to maintain that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works? What else would have to be true? If infant baptism is true, right, and, and sin is washed away and they're, and they're saved, and we are saved by salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, if that is true, then what would have to be true about infant baptism? Well, that, 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 that would teach an infused righteousness. Okay, okay. So, it, it would, we, it, what it would have to believe is that they are saved and they are forever saved. End of story. End of story. Even if they become an atheist, they become an agnostic, doesn't matter. Right? Because, because you see why that would be required, Right? If it's supposed it wasn't based on the baby, it was based on the work of God, and if the baby is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, and that all occurred somehow in baptism, then you would have to demand that that it's eternal salvation. You couldn't say, well, the baby is saved and then somehow loses it, because why would they lose it? Based off what they do. Remember, that was the whole problem. We said it destroyed the the whole gospel, destroyed the whole gospel. So that would be required. Now, this is why this is important. Because... That's why the Catholic Church doesn't believe in salvation by grace alone, faith alone, apart from works, because that, it doesn't, that, doubt, that, that doctrine doesn't fit with infant baptism. It doesn't fit with infant baptism. It can't. The ba- the, so what do you have to do? The baby is infused with righteousness. And then based on the baby's cooperation with that righteousness and the help of the church will ultimately determine if they stay in a state of grace, fall out of state of grace, go to purgatory or go to hell. At least they're consistent. Right? I I admire that. That's consistency. Like they, they, they are consistent and the entire system is consistent. It's when the Protestants come in who try to argue, no, 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 no. Baptism, you baptize the baby and it's regenerative. And there are some, well, the people who are arguing me, most of them were Presbyterian and they believed the the infant baptism was salvific. They didn't believe it was just a sign. And I was like, wait, y'all believe it? And I, wait, what? So I'm like, they, they, but I've always felt that the Westminster has it more as a sacramental view than, a, than just a sign, but I'm typically told that I'm wrong. So I found that was interesting. So I just want to make sure you understand that if you accept infant baptism, what else do you have to accept? Well, you either have to reject salvation by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone, and you have to accept some kind of works, or you have to say that when the baby is baptized, save forever. No matter what. No matter what. Those are your only two options. So, if theoretically, then what would be your options? Basically, go back to the Catholic Church. I mean, really, that would, would be the only thing that would make any sense, would it not? Nothing else makes any sense. The, the Lutheran perspective is whacked all day long because they believe it's saved, but then they believe they can Lose it, but then at the same time, they believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Well, if I can lose something, <laughs> then that's not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. That, that becomes all broken. So is everybody, I want to make sure. So whatever we do in this discussion, let's just make sure that no matter how difficult the subject becomes, 
That's, that's your only option. That's your only option. Ex- believing you can lose it destroys the gospel. So then your only option really is to return to Catholicism. Now, now saying it just puts a sign on the baby, that's, I mean, oh, that we can have that problem. You don't want to get started with Presbyterians because all I ever hear when I argue with a Presbyterian, other than this time where they told me that it is regenerative, it's just, they basically just say, you're dumb and you don't know how to read your Bible and you don't understand the covenant and you need to write, read John Calvin. And that's about as great as argument as they can have, which is, you know, don't get me started on that. So, just, I just think that that's an important part to add to the conversation. Okay, so we looked at the Didache. Everybody got that out of the way? All right, now, we jump. And that, that took us between 70, well, 50 to 100 A.D. The Didache, Didache, 50 to 100 A.D. And we can clearly establish that the Didache said nothing about babies being baptized. Everything in it clearly argued that whoever was being baptized could be instructed and could fast. Yes? And that it seemed to imply that you're put into water. Other unless you couldn't find any water. It was supposed to be running water or cold water. Right? But if you couldn't find any, you could pour it. But, and it also argued for baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right? Which goes against one, one is Pentecostal. All right? All right? Everybody got all of that. Now, now we jump to 197, somewhere between 197 and 220 AD. 197 to 220 AD. Tertullian is going to write a document that we refer to as On Baptism. I'll spell Tertullian for those who don't know T E R T U L L I A N. Tertullian, on baptism, somewhere between 197 and 220 A.D. On baptism, yeah. All right, that's what we would call it. All right, everybody got that? Everybody good with that? Okay, now, we could, now what I want to do is I want to jump right into the document and start working through it. But we have to take a little step back. And dating the next, this next information, I cannot give you specific dates. But it is absolutely critical to kind of understanding maybe, at least according to some historical sources, this is what Tertullian was trying to fight against. All right? Everybody ready for this group? All right? They are called, are you ready? The Cainites. C-A-I-N-I-T-E-S. The Cainites. Sometimes called the Canians. The Canites or the Canians. Now, you probably, can you kind of see possibly where this name derives from? Any guesses? Cain, all right, from Genesis. Okay, yes, okay. All right, the Canites or the Canians. This was a Gnostic sect. Also, an antinomian sect, sometimes referred to as. Okay, what is, does anybody know anything about this group? Nothing, never heard of them. Okay, good. Well, it's time that you know. All right, it's a Gnostic sect. 
I'm going to read from two different, multiple sources here put together. A Gnostic sect of the second century was called Canites, uh, Canites or, well, I, I just wrote it down twice. I don't know why. Canites or Canites, okay? I wrote them two, two, two ways, right? They regarded all characters. Oh, wait. No, I, okay. I thought the Canites. I spelled them t- a slightly different, but it would still be the same way, right? They regarded all the characters held up to reprobation in the Old Testament as worthy of veneration. Anyone in the Old Testament that would have been like, reprobation, bad, the villain, they said those are the individuals that should be venerated. Cain was the first one, right? Cain should be venerated. And the reason Cain should be venerated is because he suffered at the hands of a cruel God. And this was the cruel God of the Jews. So it could be a little anti-Semitism that possibly comes into this, possibly. Hence, Cain was the first man cursed by this Old Testament God that was evil. Right? They supposedly never found many adherents or many followers. Hippolytus, at the beginning of the 3rd century, dismisses them with a bare mention of their name. So Hippolytus is where we seem to learn most about them, but many believe Tertullian was responding to them. On baptism. Okay. Another source. The Canaanites, or Canians, were a Gnostic and antinomian sect known to venerate Cain as the first victim of the deity of the Old Testament who was identified by many groups of Gnostics as evil. Uh, this would have been first, first century. Somewhere, you know, just, you can kind of date it somewhere between, I don't know, 68, maybe 50 AD, maybe. Well, actually, they may, I mean, they may even have gone before that. Uh, but clearly, this is the time we're referring to them being spoken of is somewhere between 50 AD to around 300 AD. All right, the group probably existed, obviously, before that. Uh, the, the sect was relatively small. Now, they, this source claims that Tertullian and Irenaeus both mention them as well. They say that they existed, this group existed in the Eastern Roman Empire during the second century. And of course, supposedly or possibly, they are responsible for the gospel of Judas. Which is one of the apocryphal or Gnostic gospels would be a better way to put it. All right, the Canaanites or the Canaanites? Everybody got, again, need to repeat any of that? Everybody good? All right. Now, this is where there's a lo- not a lot of confirmation on this, but there seems to be at least some agreement on it. That there was a certain female teacher from the Canaanite sect 
and this is a group associated with Gnosticism, and for some reason she had made it a particular goal of demolishing the ordinance of baptism. That she decided we're going to get rid of this baptism thing. I don't know where this came from, we're going to get rid of it. And she decided to come out and attack it. At least that's the claim from some historical sources. The doctrine being exposed by, being espoused by this woman had infiltrated the walls of the church and there were even some within who were being carried off by it. Consequently, Tertullian's treatise on baptism was written as a defense against those who felt that baptism was unnecessary or ineffective. While the treatise was written to defend baptism, it was simultaneously intended to teach and encourage those who were recently baptized and had not sufficiently examined the reasons for having done so. Since there were some who had been carried away by the teaching of the Cainite sect, Tertullian saw the importance of equipping the church so that they might guard against heresies. So Tertullian, according to at least one source, was trying to argue against this female teacher of the Cainites and trying to protect baptism because some in the church was being carried off by it or being influenced by it. Which would make sense because almost all the early church writings were written for what purpose? To fight heresy, to try to answer some claim. Demonstrating once again that what was happening even at that time. Disagreement, 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 disagreement. I do not know that I don't have that currently in front of me. Someone could probably look that up and figure that out really quick. I mean, uh, the group the group was in uh, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Canaanites. Carthage, okay. I don't know if that's where he was at the time, but at least the Canaanites the Canaanites were in the Eastern Roman Empire. But wherever they were, their influence had obviously gotten to certain places. Tertullian appears to be bothered by it and has to address it. And so as a result, he writes the document that we refer to as on baptism. All right? Now, oh boy, here we go. So what we're going to do (laughs) is we're going to look at what he had to say um, and we're just going to go through it. Now, this is, it's about, I think, I can't remember. I think, is it 28 chapters, 29 chapters? It's a long, but it's not, it, it's long, but the chapters are short. It, long in a sense to walk through it as a church, because most churches would not do this, right? But the reason I do this is for what purpose? Why, why would we walk through it versus doing what most, what would most churches do? They may make a quote from it, but that would not read the whole thing and, and tell you what Tertullian believed. And then most people sitting in the church says, that's what he believed because the pastor knows no one's going to go home and actually read it. I mean, we all, I mean I, I've said that so many times. One of the biggest tricks is when a pastor quotes something from uh, the church fathers. I remember when... Uh, the one uh, Christian radio station in Abilene on Sunday mornings used to air local churches, and one of the, I don't know which local church it was, the pastor made some garbage claim about what the church father said, and then I emailed and said, where, 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 where is that church? Where? Name the church father. 
They never sent anything back because guess what? It was made up. <laughs> there was no church father making the claims that they were saying they were being made. It was just an absolute lie. I don't know where he got the information, but he wasn't willing to deal with it. So whenever you deal with the church fathers, here's the frustrating part. You, guess what? And, and, and Catholic Radio complains about this all the time because everyone grabs one, one or two statements from a church father that seems to do what? Agree with their position and then ignore... Everything else. And so what, what, have I, what have I always said about the church fathers? How do we deal with the church fathers? We don't try to have put them on our team. We let the church fathers be what? Let them be them. Now, if you're, and if you're going to say they're authoritative, then just go back to the Catholic church. Do I believe they're important? Absolutely. Do I believe Christians should read them? Absolutely. But do you think if you read them, they're going to sound like us? You're insane. Okay, it's not going to work that way. In fact, most of us, if we went back to the early church, we would be thrown out as being heretics. But everybody's like, oh, I wish we could go back to the days of the early church. You really? Okay. You know you don't, okay? Because we would not even, who knows how it would work, all right? So here we go. Um, okay, there's the cover page. Here we go. On Baptism, Chapter 1, Introduction, Origin of the Treatise. All right? <laughs> I, I'm just laughing because even trying to read this is just, I know it's going to be a train wreck of epic proportions, but that's okay. All right? But wh- one of the reasons we're doing this is... Um, in the curriculum for the Bible study exercise, what a week ago, they had an article in, in the curriculum on about on baptism, and they made references to some of these documents. But of course, what did they do? They took the parts of the document that agreed with them, and it's like no. But what I want you to see is I want you to see the how how much it's changed from the Didache to Tertullian. Like it's a whole different world, right? Uh, I mean, the Didache, wait, how many, it was it maybe even a complete sentence, maybe? Maybe two sentences completely that they have anything related to baptism? I mean, it was just brief and done. Now we have this entire treatise on baptism, something like 29 chapters with, I, sometimes you're reading this and I don't even know what in the world he's talking about. Sometimes I'm like, what is that? But that's how it always is with the church fathers. Why, why is there such a disconnect? Because it's not just the language, but we're going back to a time that we are completely removed from. Like, we think Christianity is the way we see it. But I'm telling you, we take our Christianity back to that time, they'd be like, get out of here! What is that? That's not Christianity. And that bothers people, because people want to believe that they would be like, oh, I'm so good that y'all protected the Christianity we taught. It would not work that way. Do you think they would understand our hermeneutical system? No, they wouldn't even know what we're talking about. It's just, that's just the reality of it. People don't like that, but it's just the reality. And you're going to see as we get into this. So here we go. Thinking caps on. Um, I know this is going to take forever, and, but the, the only way to protect us from people saying that the church fathers, the church fathers, the church fathers, is sometimes just deal with it. And the reason I picked three is I picked three that are, early, that are before Augustine. 
Because from Augustine forward, what do we basically have? Infant baptism that's regenerative and it washes away sin and it saves. And that's the dominant view for almost the entire entirety of Christendom from around 300, at least until you get close to the 1500s. That's just the way it is. And sometimes people go, oh no, there was a group over here. Show me their writings. And sometimes you're like, see, that group practiced believer's baptism, and you typically find out that group was also heretical. Okay, so you got to be careful about that as well. All right, but, I mean, I, I think everyone can agree that's the dominant view. There's just no way to get around it. But, what was going on before it then? Here we go. Oh, boy. Here we go. Happy is ours, and it's, or happy is our sacrament of water. Happy is our sacrament of water. Stop right here. What word is being used? Sacrament, or at least in my translation. Is, that, is anybody else looking at the work? Okay. Uh, which tra- let's see, how many different translations do we have going on? Who's your translation by? Thelwall, okay. Okay, we're using the same translation. Which, yours is, which one are you using, Bobby? Does it say? Okay, all right, it doesn't say, all right. Bobby may have a different translation, which would be good. Okay, that's fine, all right. The, the more, the, the different translations, I'm just curious if everyone uses the word sacrament, okay. Okay, but mine says sacrament. Of course, Sarah's going to say sacrament. We're using the same one, but just so that we know, all right. But here we go. Now, they refer to it as a sacrament. Now, immediately they refer to it as a sacrament. Our understanding of sacrament is that that is what? What is a sacrament? Okay, visible means of grace, meaning a baptism brings forth grace. It does something. It doesn't symbolize something. It does something. All right. Let's listen, listen to where they go with this. Everybody ready? All right, here we go. Happy is our sacrament of water in that by washing away the sins of our early blindness... We are set free and admitted into eternal life. All right, now, so immediately this makes baptism what? Regenerational, salvific. All right, regenerational, salvific. So, here we go. So, immediately we're, we're, we're... I mean, we've, we've gone a long ways already from the dedicate to this, have we not? Now, again, if we say that's true, if we say that's true, where would that lead us? Remember, that's why I started the, the message tonight. That you would have to believe then? It's forever, or you would have to believe we're not saved by, by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, and that we can lose our salvation. So, I mean, you, you, in other words, you get pushed into a corner at this point. But clearly, Tertullian believes that it, it does something, all right? What does he say next? A treatise on this matter will not be what? All right, what does that mean? All right, let's look it up. What do, you, what do you think it means? Superfluous. What does it mean? 
want to make sure we know exactly what he's referring to here. Unnecessary, especially especially though being more than enough. All right, so in other words, what he's saying is a treatise on this matter will not be unnecessary, instructing not only such as are just becoming formed in the faith, but them who, content with having simply believed without full examination of the grounds of the traditions, carry in mind through, the, through ignorance and untried through probable faith. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, this is, this is not unnecessary, it's necessary, and especially for what kinds of people who may not understand this, who have studied this or looked into this. And this is where... Uh, he feels, and course, if he's going against the Canaanites, he feels like, I've got to do this because the people who don't understand this and then are being told by this woman or this group, they could do what? I uh, will think it's not very important. It's not, it's not significant. Does that make sense? All right. Um, it says, uh, let's see here. With full examination of the groundness of the traditions, carry in mind and through ignorance and untried through probable faith. The consequence is that a viper of the Canaanite heresy, lately conversant in this quarter, has carried away a great number with her most venomous doctrine, making her first aim to, to destroy baptism. There you go. Now, some sources, like, I know it's here, but the only reason I say a lot of sources don't mention this as being the reason it's written, but he seems to identify it specifically. Yes? Okay, so I think we can say that it's fair to say that's the reason it was written. And please note, he refers to her. See, you see that as well? Okay, so I think that then the argument, the, the, what I quoted, I think gives us at least some argument that therefore... There's some truth to that, yes? Okay, I hope so. All right. Hang on, let me do a refresh here. All right, good. So her first aim was to destroy baptism, which is quite in accordance with the nature, for vipers and asp themselves generally do affect arid and waterless places. Now, this is very typical church father-like writing, because what does he do here? Well, now as you call them snakes, it becomes very allegorical, right? Of course they would go after baptism because baptism deals with water. And they're a viper, and vipers like arid dry places. So it has to get very allegorical, okay? That's, that's just typical church father. Uh, I, I like it, and, like it's fun to read, but it, sometimes they get, they get way carried away with it. <laughs> I know, <laughs> It is funny, okay. But we, little fishes. <laughs> okay, oh man. Which is funny because remember, some believe that there, there was a symbol, the fish represents Christians, okay, and, and all of that. All right. So, um, after the example of our, and then they use the Greek term, Jesus Christ, are born and water, nor have we safety in any other way than by permanently abiding in water. So that most monstrous creature who had no right to teach even sound doctrine knew full well how to kill the little fishes by taking them away from the water. All right, so we're the fish. They're the snakes. Snakes don't like water, but we are fish. And what do we need to survive? Water, meaning what do we need to survive? 
baptism. That's the argument that he is making. All right? Baptism. Yeah, I, I, I don't think you can get around that this is clearly leading to baptism or regenerating. There's no way to get around that that. That basically without baptism, that, that's, that's where we have to exist. With it, by it, because of it. In other words, without it, we don't survive. We don't live. We have to have the, baptiz- the water of baptism. So, in other words, it's absolutely... I cannot say. That's a good question. Cannot say. Right. You're only baptized once, but in a sense you live and abide in it because you've been baptized. Right? Does that make sense? Right. And, and of course you do things depending on, on most Catholic churches. When you walk in, what is usually right to the... Well, it depends on how it's structured. It's right there by the entranceway. Water. And then you dip your, you dip your hand in it. And then what, when you do this, what are you remembering? Your baptism. Because you're baptized in the name of the by water, right? So maybe maybe that's where it's establishing that concept. But water, water, water. So he's he's dry. I mean, this water is super important. Or maybe it's a, that's a good point too. That's a good point too. All right. So everybody see that? All right. That brings us to chapter two. We made it through chapter one without too many problems. All right. Now. Just so no, so just please note, if you're arguing with a Catholic or you're arguing with anybody, you see where they're going to immediately go to, right? They're going to Tertullian. And what are you going to say? <laughs> okay, that's what, we have to acknowledge that's what it says. That's what I want to make sure. We have to acknowledge. There's no way to get around. Tertullian is clearly putting forth the sacramental view of baptism. There's just no way to get around it. Now, he's going to, he's going to say something later on that seems confusing as all get out because he's going to acknowledge, well, wait a minute. If you baptize them, they may grow up and not believe. He is, go- he, he is going to acknowledge that problem. He is going to acknowledge that problem, which then, then what does it do? Right? Okay, so th- th- we're, we're going to get into that. All right, chapter two. What do we have in chapter two? The very simplicity of God's means of working a stumbling block to the carnal mind. So what he's going to put forth here is this. All right? He's going to put forth the idea that God's way of working is simple, but it's, it's a stumbling block to our fleshly minds. And it's very simple. You put water on someone and... Well, that, that seems to be what he has indicated. Let's see how, where, what he says here. All right, everybody ready? Well, but how great is the force of perversity for so shaking the faith or entirely perverting the reception that it impunge it on the very principles of which the faith consists. There is absolutely nothing which makes man's minds more obdurate, which means what? What is obdurate? Let's, let's, let's just verify. Let's just verify. If there's anything we need to look up, we will look it up because we don't want anyone to say that we misrepresented anything in it. Stubborn. Stubbornly refusing to change one's mind or course of action. All right? Abdurate. All right? That's, 
That's a new word we can use, right? Okay. Unmoved, stubborn, all right? So let's say this. There is absolutely nothing which makes men's minds more stubborn, right, than the simplicity of the divine work which are visible in the act when compared with the grandeur which is promised thereto in the effect so that from the very fact that with so great simplicity, without pomp, without any considerable novelty of preparation, finally without expense, a man is dipped in water and amid the utterance of some few words is sprinkled and then rises again, not much or not at all the cleaner, the consequent attainment of eternity is esteemed the more incredible. So what is he trying to establish here? That our minds can't really perceive or conceive of something so simple doing such a great work. Right? Well, like it, we, it, we would think it would have to be something big, something gigantic has to happen to get that effect. In other words, the greater the effect, the more grand or more flashy or big should be the cause of that effect. And that we can't comprehend or wrap our minds around why it doesn't work that way. Does that make sense? He says, I am a deceiver if on... The contrary, it is not from their circumstances and preparation and expense that idols, solemnities, or mysteries get their credit and authority built up. O miserable and crudility, which quite deniest to God his own properties, simplicity, and power. What then? Is it not wonderful too that death should be washed away by bathing? But it is more to be believed if the wonderfulness be the reason why it is not believed. For what does it behove, behove divine works to be in their quality except that they all be above all wonder? We also ourselves wonder, but it is because we believe. And crudility, on the other hand, wonders, but does not believe. For the simple act, it wonders at as if they were vain, the grand results as if they were impossible, and grant that it be just as you think sufficient to meet each point and the divine declaration which has forerun. The foolish things of the world hath God elected to confound its wisdom and the things very difficult with man are easy with God. For if God is wise and powerful, which even they who pass him by do not deny, it is with good reason that he lays the material cause of his own operation and the contraries of wisdom and of power, that is in foolishness and impossibility, since every virtue receives its cause from those things by which it is called forth. All right. Simply put, what is he trying to demonstrate here? Infant baptism or baptism, well, he necessarily doesn't necessarily say infants yet, right? He hasn't used infants, so let's be fair. Baptism, he, he is arguing, appears to be what to our minds? Simple act. And it's foolish to say that simple act could produce something as great as eternal life. Everybody see that? that that's, that's his argument. Right? We can, can we all agree that there was at least a little bit of truth to that? Yeah, I mean, I mean can't we all agree that, that, that it would be hard for us to comprehend that baptism could produce such a great thing? 
I think we can all agree with that. Right? Now, he's not putting forth a positive argument, really. He's just saying, hey, he's, what basically he has done is he's starting with the presupposition that what? Baptism does this thing. It, and the reason we don't understand it is because we have a carnal mind and we're foolish. Right. So therefore, we should just accept it. It's not really much of a positive defense as much he's already assuming it's true. And if you reject it, why, basically, how would the debate go? Why do you reject it? Because you have a carnal mind and you don't understand how God works. So it's not really a positive argument for anything. It's just really setting it up that, hey, we're spiritually minded because we see what it does. And you are of those vipers who wants to kill the little fish by getting them out of the water. That's basically his argument. That brings us to chapter 3. Water chosen as a vehicle of divine operation, and wherefore its prominence first of all in creation. All right. Now, you see, I know where he's getting ready to go here. All right, he's going to talk, talk about that if you go to Genesis. Water is there, and so everything arises from... That's, that's where he's going to go. Okay. But this is a typical kind of hermeneutic that they would use, yes? All right. Mindful of this declaration as of a conclusive prescript, we nevertheless proceed to treat the question how foolish and impossible it is to be formed anew by water. And what respect, pray, has this material substance merited an office of so high dignity? So he's going to say, look, I know some of you are going to say, well, water can't do this. So why are we saying water can accomplish this? Why are we giving water such high dignity? Why can we say that water accomplishes this? And he's going to put forth his argument for why. All right, here we go. The authority, I suppose, of the liquid element has to be examined. This, however, is found in abundance and, it, and that from the very beginning. For water is one of those things which before all the furnishings of the world were quiescent with God and a yet unshapen state. In the first beginning, saith scripture, God made the heavens and the earth, but the earth was invisible and unorganized and darkness was over the abyss. And the spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. The first thing, O man, which you have to venerate, is the age of the waters and that their substance is ancient. The second is their dignity and that they were the seat of the divine spirit, more pleasing to him, no doubt, than all the other existing elements. For the darkness was total, thus far shapeless, without ornament of stars, and the abyss gloomy, and the earth unfurnished, and the heaven unwrought, Water alone, always a perfect, gladsome, simple material, substance, pure in itself, supplied a worthy vehicle to God. Stop right here. Now, so what is his argument here? I know at times it's wordy, but what's his argument? Right. Yeah, it's basically the very first thing 
and the Spirit hovered over it. Not over the darkness, not over the, the earth, but over the water. So therefore, it's dignity. It's to be venerated. It's to be understood that it has power. It's a, wor- it's a worthy vehicle unto God. Now, what would we say in regards to this? What would be our argument against this? Well, he just he just gave you the place where it's oh he, that, yeah that's that's what he's saying <laughs> okay I don't interpret it that way okay what would be what would be a, a good hermeneutical ar- argument though other than I don't interpret it that way <laughs> hopefully we have something better than that. Okay. That wouldn't be a hermeneutical argument. What would be a good hermeneutical argument? I'm having you guys tell me. Come on, if you're arguing with a Catholic and they're like, or anybody who believes in infant baptism, like Tertullian, right here, right here, come on. What would you say? Okay, well, I hope y'all never get into a debate with anyone on infant baptism, okay? All right, all right, let's, let's proceed, all right? Here we go. Where do we stop? A worthy vehicle to God. You see, I've got to find out where I stopped. Um, and I'm not going to give you the hermeneutical argument because, well, maybe at some point I will, but I'll let y'all think about it because there, there's a simple one, but all right. Here we go. What of the facts that waters were in some way the regulating powers by which the disposition of the world thenceforward was constituted by God. For the suspension of celestial firmament in the midst, he caused by dividing the waters, the suspension of the dry land, he accomplished by separating the waters. After the world had been hereupon set in order, though its elements where when inhabitants were given it, the waters were the first to receive the precept for, to bring forth living creatures. Water was the first to produce that which had life, that it might be no wonder in baptism if waters know how to give life. Okay, so his argument is water was there at the beginning, Right? The Spirit hovered over it. He, he basically got the dry land by separating the waters from it, and it was from the waters where life began. Therefore, why wouldn't baptism be the place where our spiritual life first began? Anybody got a good hermeneutical argument yet against any of this? Okay. Oh. All right. Okay. You're you're gonna go for for it wasn't the water that did it. Okay. Okay. All right. Show me the text. Give me the text. Okay. Good. That's not the hermeneutical ar- argument I'm looking for, but this is at least a hermeneutical argument. So this is a good one. Okay.
It wasn't the water doing the dividing. It was God doing the dividing. Okay. 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 So once again, God's doing it. It's not the water doing it. But when it, when it talks about the life coming from the waters, that's where I want to see it, how that is described. Okay. God, right. So it wasn't that the water gave it life, but that was where God brought life. He put the life there. That's the way we're reading it, right? That we would say that it's God who created the life in the water. It wasn't that the water that produced the life. Now, if a good Lutheran would come along and be like, well, thank you, Sarah, you just proved our point, because when you take God's word and the water and you put them together, you get a sacrament. Right? Oh, even a Catholic would make that argument. Okay, but... the Chapter 2, it says, verse 7 says, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Okay, there, okay, very good. Okay, now that, that's another good one, right? Because now then you'd have to say, well, dust... Why don't we dust people, put dust on people, right? Because dust brought forth life, right? Okay, very good. But or brought forth man, okay. So, okay, right. So, in other words, you could go grab that and try to make an argument. But here's what I was trying to get y'all to do. Because this is just a simple hermeneutical principle. Is anything in Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, the whole chapter, the whole book, is any of it about baptism? No. So what they're doing is, it's, it's, a, it's a hermeneutical trick. He's going to a text that has nothing to do with baptism, finding some things about water, and like, okay, well, baptism has water. Well, that, that's the typical way they handle everything. I mean, that's the early church, right? That's why I said they wouldn't accept our hermeneutic. They would throw our hermeneutic out in five seconds. They would say, what are you talking about? You don't even know how to read, right? We would, but I, I just want you to see, we would argue, well, wait a minute. You can't go to just any place that mentions water and connects it to baptism. Or dust, or like, like you, I mean, you can just, you cannot do that, Right? Uh, so, for this to work, what would be required, hermeneutically, to go to Genesis 1, 2, 3, or any of these passages that mention water, and connect it to baptism, what would be required, hermeneutically? No. Something else would be required. I mean, that would help, but there's something else that would be required. You would have to have a passage that's mentioning baptism that references Back to Genesis. In other words, Jesus or, or whoever's talking, Paul talking about baptism, says, don't you remember? The living creatures came from the water. Don't you remember? Because guess what? I, I, I'll just use, I can use the same allegory. Well, wait a minute. Water in Genesis gives life. What does water do in Genesis 6? It destroys life, right? Okay, so then, how does that work? They, he's just—he's going to the positive passages that mention water and say, see, the Spirit was hovering above it, see? And water brought forth life. 
Therefore, it would be foolish for you to say that baptism doesn't bring forth life. No, that's, that's just the most... I can go to Genesis 6 and say water kills people. Nobody get baptized. <laughs> okay? So in other words, water... So Sometimes water... I mean, why did Moses turn the water into blood? I mean, is he, it, wasn't he corrupting the sign of baptism? Why were the army of Egypt drowned? So if I, if I put, so if I take this allegory too far, if I put water on the wrong person, they die. And I put water, like, well, then how does that work? Like, just, he's just running to some odd passage going, see, see, water, 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 water. It, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's got to be venerated. That, that's, you see the problem? <laughs> right. Well, then he got in trouble for doing that. Okay. <laughs> but all right. So I just want you to see that that that, that, that the, the, I want you to see the hermeneutical issue is he's going to a passage that's not about baptism to prove something about baptism. If you're going to prove us something about baptism, you don't go to Genesis. You go to where baptism's actually talked about. Now, if those passages that mention baptism reference back to this, then we've got an issue. But they don't. They don't. The closest would be in Peter, but when he talks about water, he references the flood. Okay, which becomes a, a whole issue, all right? Okay, um, we're going to run out of time. All right, here we go. Um, where did we stop? Okay, uh, the waters were the first to receive the precept to bring forth living creatures. And again, it... They, they, it may, the waters were told to bring forth living creatures, but who put the living creatures there? God. It wasn't the water who created it. Okay. Yeah, he, it's almost like he seems he's giving water the power. All right. Okay. Water was the first to produce that which had life. See, see how it says that? Water was the first to produce that which had life, and we would be like, no. God produced life in the water. It wasn't the water that produced it. It was God who produced it. Agreed? Well, at least that's how I would read it. Well, yeah, we could, we could, we would have to look at. Well, I have to look at how the whole order goes. Okay. <laughs> oh, I know it gets worse. I know, I know it gets worse. All right. Okay. Water was the first to produce that which had life, that it might be no wonder in baptism if water know, know how to give life. If waters know how to give life. For was not the work of fashioning man himself also achieved with the aid of waters? Suitable material is found in the earth, yet not apt for the purpose unless it be moist and juicy. Which earth, the waters, separated the fourth day before into their own place, temper with their remaining moisture to a clay consistency. Oh yeah, now he's just like, yeah, now. Oh yeah, now it's just going crazy. Hey, <laughs> I didn't say much. <laughs> but this is, remember what we've talked about before. Remember when we were talking about hermeneutics and I read that commentary from an allegorical perspective and y'all said never, and I, and y'all didn't even want to take it home. Nobody wanted it. This is the same kind of craziness. <laughs> I know. Let's do this. Look up. Look up the Hebrew word for dust. Let's look up the Hebrew word for dust in Genesis. Is it Genesis 2? 
Yeah, look up the Hebrew word. Let's just make sure. Let's make sure we're being fair. <laughs> I know this is hilarious. It, it's, it's hard to take it serious, isn't it? What's the Hebrew word for dust? Oh. But see, it has a lo- wide range of meaning. It could be ash, dust. So, but it has a wide range, so you could argue for it. But, but let's just be honest. In baptism, you don't put mud on the baby. Okay, right. So it still wouldn't even fit, even if you tried to go with their argument. All right, but okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, but you got to read the church fathers, okay? Because they knew everything. Right, exactly. Yeah, good point. Well, why even do the dust? If he wanted to make a point, he brought, he, water was everywhere. Just he, he formed man out of the water. Right, I mean, like, then it would have been easy. Okay, but we needed a church father to say, but it was moist, it was juicy. Okay, it was... That, it's ridiculous. Okay, I'm trying to take it serious, guys. Okay, stop making it hard on me here, okay? All right, but all right, where did we stop here? Okay, now I've lost my split. <laughs> I've lost my place. Okay. okay, I gotta, I gotta find where we were. Okay, all right, suitable. Okay, um, for the purpose to be moist and juicy, with earth, the waters separated the fourth day before into their own place, temper, uh, temper with the remaining moisture to a clay consistency. If from that time onward I go forward in recounting universally or at more length the evidence of the authority of the element which I can adduce to show how great is its power or its grace. Now please note, the power, the authority, the grace comes from where? The water. Yeah, I mean, that, this, is, this is utterly ridiculous. How many ingenious devices, how many functions, how useful an instrumentality it affords the world. I fear I may seem to have collected rather, rather the praises of water than the reasons of baptism, although I should teach, I should thereby teach all the more fully that it is not to be doubted that God has made the material substance which he has disposed throughout all his product and works Obey him also in his own peculiar sacraments that the material substance which governs terrestrial life acts as an agent likewise in the celestial. Meaning basically what? God has set it up that the water basically creates life. All right, and that was chapter three. So now we're up to chapter four and we'll have to stop. All right, now, what, here's what I want you to see. Do you, isn't it amazing how far removed this is from the Didache? I mean, it's, it's not even in the same universe. The Didache does not mention any of this in any way, shape, or form. Not only does the Didache not mention this, can you find one scripture anywhere close to this kind of thing? No. No. 
He did put mud. Yeah, he did. I guarantee you, they would love that. They would love that. Okay, they would. They would love. They would love that as well. I don't think they're trying to use great intellect. It's just they just everything is allegorical. Everything's just allegorical. So, baptism has water in it. Let's go find anything that talks about water in the Bible. And then say, look, the water's doing great things. Therefore, baptism. Right. Well, probably, probably just ignore that. Or show the power of it. Yeah, power. But it still would try to make it work. But it, it's a completely foreign world to us. And so what, so many times, that's why I, it's so maddening when people are like, the church fathers, the church fathers. Yeah, everyone should read the church fathers and know the church fathers, but you're entering into a world that is like so different from us. And so we love to take those little cl- clips from the church fathers that sound so rather profound and amazing and great. And then anything else that sounds insane, we just do what with? Just toss it. Well, well, right. I mean, like at this point, he doesn't even have a completed canon at this point. Right. I mean, that's why he's quoting from Genesis. That's why he's quoting from Genesis. So you also have to give them a little bit of understanding of where they were. I mean... Yeah, I mean, I mean, where, where, where are they going to go about baptism? He's not going to say, pull out your New Testament. <laughs> right? So where's he got to go? He's got to go to a testament that, does, that mentions what? Water. It does not mention baptism. <laughs> okay, so. Right. Right, right, yeah, who knows whatever else he may have, who knows as we go through this. But, but I'm just saying that that, we have to at least take that into account. But what I want, what I want everyone to see is going to the, saying the church fathers is the answer to everything is just a ridiculous point because nobody agrees with everything the church fathers say. Nobody. I mean, that was the big argument between Luther and the Catholic Church. Luther wanted to quote whom? Augustine. It was an Augustinian monk. And they were like, no, we're not going to, no, you're wrong. So even then, even within the Catholicism, quoting church fathers still can end in disagreement. Because sometimes they say something rather profound, and other times you're like, what? How did we get here? So meaning what? So really, this is what you have to do. Either you pick and choose, and if you pick and choose the church fathers, then what authority are you using to make an argument? Your own authority. If you pick and choose. Now, if you're going to say that the church fathers had authority, then you have to do what? Accept everything. Because the minute you pick and choose, you're becoming the authority. And when I tried to explain this to the people I had an argument with, they thought it was the most ridiculous thing and that I was dumb and I didn't know what I was talking about. And I'm like, they were like, how dare you be dismissive of the church fathers? What are you talking about? Like, so do we, uh, well, they don't, and then they even admit, well, they don't have the final authority whenever they agree with scripture, meaning whenever they agree with your interpretation. Like, how can you not understand the game we play? 
It's like the church fathers is this mysterious group of individuals that most Christians are never going to read. And, and not only that, we would have to ask the question, is it required that you know the church fathers in order to be a Christian? Because the way some people treat it, you can't even understand your Bible without the church fathers. Meaning that the Bible is not sufficient. The Bible with the church fathers is sufficient. And if the Bible with the church fathers is sufficient, well, then we need a Bible with the church fathers in it. But we can't get Christians to read the Bible, much less read the church fathers. So I, then we're in all kinds of trouble. Well, 33, yeah, typically 33 volumes, yes. If you buy the completed works. Well, I mean, that's, that's nobody's going to... And not only that, half the time we don't even know what they're talking about. Do you know what he's even talking about through some of this? You're like, yeah, well, what, what is going on? What is going on here? Right, what, what, what is he talking like? So the mud was, was moist and juicy, and that, that boom! Well, water, and the water was power, powerful, and the water does it. And water, and, and water gives life. And, but even he acknowledges that he seems to be, there at the end he talked about, I basically, I'm singing the praises of water. But God made the water. But because God used, made the water, the water can't have this power. So don't think, I, like he's even, he even aware that, I, I know I sound like I'm praising water, but hey, just know God made the water so the water can have this power. But if the water has that power, then all we have to do is put water on people and they're saved. And if it has that much power, why then does he later on, he's going to be like, you know what? Hold off. Don't, don't baptize the child. Hold off. Because they could get older and just not care about any of this stuff. So let's wait until they beg for it. Yeah. Well, I thought it had the power. Yeah, you would just walk around. And like I said, if it... it yeah, I, and I've also said, also, and I've said, if this is even halfway true, every church should open a daycare for free. Newborn to like three years of age. And then you just bring the child in and then like, thank you so much. And when the parent leaves, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three, three, three drops of water and then they're good to go. And people think that, that but that, I'm serious. If we really believe it works. That's what you would do. You wouldn't be charging anyone daycare. And you say, you should tell the parent. It's why. It's not. I mean, it's like the child's not going to go home. They baptized me. The child doesn't know what happened. And then you just produced. You just produced salvation. And then all of a sudden, when, when that kid's like 17 and they're obedient and they follow God's law and they do everything right, the parents would be like, man, what, how did my child turn out so good? Yeah, it doesn't work that way, does it? Okay? Even if they make a profession of faith, it doesn't always turn out that way. So, on one hand, he wants us to think the water has all this power, but they always have to come back and do what? Get, have an, a, a way to get out of it. And what's their way to get out of it? Well, they lost it. Well, then that's not, we're more powerful than the water. So then the water doesn't have that much power. <laughs> Either it has the power to get produce the life, and if God's the one producing the life, you think it would last. 
So the whole thing begins to fall apart. But I just want you to see from the dedicated this, this is like, what is this? Does it, I mean, all right, we'll stop there. All right, look how we come before you this evening. 2,000 years, we still don't understand and we still don't agree on pretty much anything in your church. Sometimes it's the most frustrating reality, but Lord, just help us continue to try to figure out what the truth is based off your word, because when we look to the words of men, we just find confusion and debate. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,